No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Okay, terrific. Language and writing were made available. He'll teach you everything. I'm writing this down. This is good stuff. I'm hey, I'm John. This is John Helps You Write Better. And today, today I'm feeling nostalgic. So how about we talk a little old school stuff. We talk about stuff that I was studying uh, 20 something years ago in the, in the, at the turn of the, of the century around 1999 to about 2003, I guess. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to try and do this without being like super dry and boring. And it's totally okay if you want to tap out of this episode, because I'm going to talk about two academic nerds and it, it's it's totally okay if you have no interest whatsoever in learning about some really like some real nerdy stuff that you, you're gonna find out about at some point and you're just gonna want to shove some dudes into lockers and I get it but I just want to like get this out of my system and I swear there's value to it I swear there is like legit curiosity and and stuff for you with this you just have to you just have to kind of like parse and weed through a ton of bullshit to get to it but let's let's let us travel back in time i don't have do i have a sound effect for traveling back in time let's see yeah there we go okay so let it let us go backwards let us go back to 1999 and um all right that's that's a long ass sound effect. I'm so sorry. It doesn't need to be that goddamn long. But um, let's go back to 1999. I was barely out of high school. I had just left my first university due to some, uh, let's call them issues with other humans that resulted in 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 some not. Uh, it, how do I say this? Like bad things happened to me, and I left. And I had, I had resumed my education elsewhere. And I was trying to figure out what the fuck to do with my life. And as a result, uh, I withdrew from people pretty substantially because some of them had just hurt me at my previous university. So I spent a lot of time really focusing on learning and like school. And I just thought if I was just good at school, then bad things wouldn't happen to me because I was traumatized and not yet dealing with it and and life was a mess. So I I got I, I was in school and I was really fascinated with the study of linguistics and and the study of sort of uh, the growth and, and perspective of language as a, an anthropological and an archaeological tool like Every, every time somebody goes on the planet somewhere and digs up a city or a civilization, they find some evidence of communication. And, and that was really amazing to me. It scratched that, I want to be Indiana Jones itch. And in learning, like, not just, hey, we found evidence of communication in language, but also how there were similarities between 
uh, these languages and and places that were very disparate from one another. Like, oh, there's a symbol for this concept, and over here we have a different symbol in a different language on a different continent for that same thing. Isn't it interesting how universal this stuff was? And and this debate I sent me sort of diving deep into not just the idea of like symbols and words and pictures and, and scratches and, and marks to indicate concepts, but also like the general like history of it. Like how did we decide that, you know, two squiggles and a dot with a curve is this, but over there they decided that, you know, four vertical lines and, and like a questioning mark kind of looking thing means the same thing. And, and I, I wanted to study that. In, in particular, I wanted to study the more modern applications of it, like how in Philadelphia we can call something a John, J-A-W-N, but we in northern New Jersey or New York City might call it a joint. The words sound sort of similar. They have a J sound. There's an oin sound, whether it's on or oint. So we're, we're in the ballpark, but that kind of stuff fascinates me. It still does. And this leads me to study two guys, Noam Chomsky, who's not dead, but is really, really ancient. And you probably know him more for his political activism now than his linguistic studies. And uh, a guy who clearly needed to be shoved into more lockers, a dude named Charles F. Hockett, who every time uh, he ever like did anything or went anywhere and he's, his stuff is all over like, several major schools he's he's huge in like um Ithaca college and I think Rice he he was he was like a he was a big dude who made a lot of like national sciencey stuff but his he was also at Cornell he taught at Cornell for a while but his, his big contribution was this idea of like the structure and understanding of language as a communicative device and as an anthropological tool he um, really was sort of, he's one of those guys that sits at the Venn diagram overlap of a lot of different um, linguistics and, and, anthropo and anthropology studies to point out how some languages kind of draw on lots of different, sim lots of different things, but lots of similar things at the same time and how uh, language is structured and how language transforms not just in written form, but then to speech and vice versa and how music comes into play, and it became this very permutative thing. His big contribution to all this stuff is he's part of the structuralist school of linguistics. He's the idea of distributionalism, which is a really complicated, nerdy, tuck-your-shirt-in kind of way of describing that like a, a thing in language, an element, is what it does. So a noun, nouns, and a verb, verbs. And a noun is a noun and a verb is a verb. And how we see them in context is sort of how we learn to know what they are. It's how little kids figure out language when they verb everything or they noun everything. You, you learn based on seeing or hearing other people use it. It makes, structure, it makes the structure of sentences and the structure of ideas and the knowing the do's and don'ts of a, of a word or the do's and don'ts of an idea really clear. It makes things very crunchy when you drill down to it. it it's this very trainable methodology for understanding language, teaching language, in, interacting with languages. It's uh, Tim Ferriss many, many years ago wrote a blog, wrote a uh, kind of bullshitty blog post about how if you only learn 13 sentences, you can, you can learn any language. And there's somewhat, there's a lot of 
distributionalism and structuralism and privilege baked into those ideas. It's not a bad idea, but it's one of those ideas where we're just sort of going, well, you're spending your time thinking about this, bro. You want to like go have a sandwich, touch some butts, maybe watch some TV, play a video game, smoke something, eat something, hang out a little bit. We're going to spend our time in space thinking about how sentences sentence. But sure, that's what this dude was down for. So that's what we ended up doing. Now, his concept of distributionalism sort of was the the major way we thought about stuff until we bring in Noam Chomsky. Now, ha, uh, basically, to put to find a point on it, these two guys didn't really get along and they didn't really agree because Chomsky's idea of what's called generative grammar or generative language, the idea that there is like a biological toolbox and a biological set of expectations that's hardwired into us in order to communicate. And even if you locked us all in little matrix gel pods, we would find a way to communicate and it would all have certain features no matter what, even if we were isolated, even if we never ran into another one of us, our language possesses this sort of universal communicative potential and this universal communicative structure uh, predicated mostly on like the physical biology uh, that allows us to speak vocal cords, lips, mouths, palates, teeth, tongue, that kind of stuff. And where we see creatures who possess those same things, we see a lot of similar stuff. Like those animals have palates, so they're capable of those sounds. And those animals have vocal cords, they're capable of those sounds. And those animals don't, so they're not capable of those sounds. Again, really sciencey, really nerdy and it's a, it's just a way of trying to apply some some chewy unnecessarily dense way of thinking when it comes to language where where i was fascinated and where this sort of overlaps for me was how does language go from place to place how does language move how does language move with people how do people interpret language because if let's say i live here where i live now and i move 600 miles to my south chances are i will encounter people who use a different vernacular who speak with a different accent and who generally you know, discuss and, and live with different things than I live with here. Would I adopt that accent? Would I mutate my current speech with whatever its accent may or may not be with their, with whatever their accent may or may not be? And should we write that shit down? And should we study it? Should we spend time thinking about it? Um, kinda, kinda. It's, it's interesting. It's very academic. It's the sort of thing that gets you tenure in some place. But does it have a real-world application for you and I out here with our books? Kind of. Um, not as much as you might think. More in a sense of, like, if we can think about how language operates, we can not only understand character dialogue, because then we can say, okay, what is this character expressing? And what tools do they use in order to express themselves? But also we can look at our exposition and our narration and our, our scene discussions and our beat discussions. So we can narrow down like, oh, this is how I'm going to tell that story. The, the bigger picture here is... Ultimately, you can you can lose a lot of ground to theory. You can get like deep into this idea of like allophones and phonemes and 
and and mimetic impressionism and all these different terms and you can get lost in like categorization features and 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 behavior you can go you end up somewhere with like bf skinner and all this stuff where we're just trying to figure out what is functionally a a philosophical question of is language something that is biochemically derived meaning we've evolved throughout time and space we've evolved biologically and, and chemically and electrically to be able to produce speech and this is all sort of a uh, a function of that scientific evolution or is it supernaturally given it was this given to us by a deity or creator or some greater higher power who installed this in us because it is abnormal because while the the counterpoint for the scientific uh evolutionary sort of generative view is that if we have a long enough timeline, dogs will be talking because they or chimps will be talking because they have the same, not necessarily the exact same size and shape of structures, but they possess vocal cords and lips and mouths and palates and tongues and teeth and all the things we used to speak. Dolphins and whales do. Well, dolphins kind of do and whales have huge ass fucking brains. Pigs do too. Given a long enough timeline, they'll be talking, right? Whereas the other side of this says, oh, no, you know, like God, Yahweh, somebody gave this to us because it is so abnormal because we're the ones who speak and animals who possess some of the same material don't speak. They bark, they meow, they moo, they make other noises, which we don't recognize as speech. And therefore, we as humans, it's a human supremacy thing. We as humans... Um, we speak and they make sound and that's the distinction. Although it disregards the idea that they're primitive peoples, you know, like stuff that, um, primitive peoples, they, they didn't have half the words we do. So were they making sounds at some point, the, the, you know, the, the semi, the semi human, the not yet, you know, homo sapiens probably made noise. Uh, even, I mean, yeah, from an asshole point of view, all speech is making noise, but I think you get what I'm saying. The whole big picture here, the whole point of this is that I, in, in, in late 90s, early 2000s, was gripped by these ideas. Oh, man, it was so interesting because really it just got me away from like all the other bad shit that was going on in my life. And what happened was I got really, really deep in this. But I was also like trying to figure out who I was. I was, I was really young and I was trying to discover myself and what bumped me or derailed me off that academic path. And I, I make a joke about it, but it's accurate. What bumped me off that path were discovering that there were people in the world who were nice and there were people in the world who were interested in me and there were people in the world who could communicate a number of things to me without me having to explain myself or earn their praise. I didn't have to like forcibly impress them. I didn't have to be the smart one in the class. I didn't have to get an A. I didn't have to like buy their favor or make them like me because I would get them things. It was just a matter of they liked hanging out with me. And in the course of just being liked for being me, uh, I, I let go of some of that rigidity 
in in linguistic anthropology and that rigidity in academic structure and that rigidity in it's got to be a certain way and there have to be formulas for things and it has to you know like there's all theory and very little practice because we have to get the theory right because if we get all the theory right then the practice will be very simple and i i always joke that what changed my mind were butts and boobs and drugs and drinking and sex and hip hop and and music and jazz and uh, working with people and laughing. And I, I, I joked that that changed my life, but those things did change my life. Getting hammered at 5.30 in the evening and working in, as, as a researcher and an intern and, a, and an editor in radio gave, and writing jokes gave me a chance to appreciate just, oh, no one gives a shit about like syntax right now. I just got to figure out a funny thing to say. And being able to go to a bar with somebody and having a nice time just laughing with them or, you know, ending up on a date or, you know, getting high at two o'clock in the morning in a stairwell gave me a different appreciation for, yes, I'm communicating, but no one's sitting here going, okay, so B.F. Skinner said in this text in 1930, whatever, like it, it didn't matter. No one was going to ask me what, like, Morris Swadesh was doing in the 1930s. Uh, mostly they were asking, like, hey, do you want to go get, like, a sandwich? Or do you want to hang out? Or do you want to just, like, watch some TV or something? And my point here with all this walk down memory lane is to is to both remember it. I wish I could remember more names. I see pictures in my head because I vaguely remember these people. I cooked my brain in that era. And frankly, I, a lot of those people, I don't remember. I don't, a lot of them were named Robert. I have a lot of Roberts in my head, but um, like, I don't remember them specifically, but also part of it was just this reduction in the importance of the academic theory. It's nice. It's delightful to know these things, but if you can't apply it, if you can't synthesize it into a way that helps you not just focus, but helps you express yourself because theory is only going to be good up to a certain point. I didn't want to admit that in my, you know, late teens and early twenties because theory was this comforting thing I could insulate myself with. But now in my mid forties, theory is great. But theory can so often be this thing we want to perfect. We have to complete it like 100% in a video game. And then we'll go around and, and, and do the, the practical. Once we master all the theory, there's no mastering theory. It's just not a thing. There's, no, there, there's, there's nothing like that. You don't have to do that. It's not like we need to level up to this number of levels before the video game unlocks the next stage. Theory's great. You can learn theory as you go, but it's that synthesis of theory and practical that really helps you advance. And it's it's delightful to know that the seventh design feature of language is semanticity, the idea that sound signals uh, something that is specifically tied to a meaning. Like, that's great. That's very nice. Um, is, is that going to help you, like, not get into an argument tomorrow with somebody who frustrates you at work? Is that going to you know, help you express yourself to the person you have feelings for? Is that going to, you know, help you get through the day with therapy or remembering to drink water or take your meds? Probably not. But learning to balance and juggle those things is as much as, it's as critical to your writing and critical to your development as just 
acquiring the knowledge is in the first place. So many writers, way too many writers, want to get bogged down and here's the theory and let's do the theory and let's break this down and let's get crunchy. And then they don't implement it in their practice or they just don't practice. Or when they implement it, it's because they're trying to replicate it constantly. Oh, if I just follow this formula, that will be covered. Like if I just rehearse this and, and crank out the cookie cutter template of it, I'll get it. And you won't. There's a lot more abstraction than there is academics in writing. It's art. It's like painting. Yes, we can learn to hold the proper brush and dip it in the color, but how we apply it to the canvas, how we move it, how we see it, how we shape it matters. And how you write, your whether you want to call it voice or your tone or your text or your idea, whatever you want to call it, how you write is shaped not only by what you know, but also by what you feel. And if there's a, if I ever get a time machine and I go back and I talk to myself in those critical years, what I would tell myself is that I spent an awful lot of time running away from those feelings, not synthesizing them, not dealing with them, trying to replace the bad shit with, with different shit without really stopping and looking at it, just collecting a, an amusing series of anecdotes and experiences, but not really like letting the feelings sink in. And it was when I started to let feelings really sort of permeate in me that I was able to connect all those academic dots and learn that I could, you know, kick about half of them to the curb and it never came up again. And I could, I could build a better way of communicating because communication isn't just how much I know. It's what I know, regardless of degree, but also what I want to express, why I want to express it, and how I want to express it. It's, it's, individua it's individuation. It's this ability to kind of come across and say, this is me, and this is where I'm at. Where are you, and where are you at? And I think when our writing focuses that way. I think when we keep that front and center more than whether or not we've read Chomsky or whether or not we, you know, know Zelig or whether we know Hockett or whether we know, you know, any of the other people or whether we know the Sanskrit people and the, and the, 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 the I'm going to get the name wrong, the Vrayanana, like whether we know any of that stuff doesn't, doesn't matter. Cause at the end of the day, you're trying to share your life with somebody else through the medium of your story. And whether we're talking about that, that fun time you were 23 and that person, you know, let you touch their boobs or whether we're talking about, oh, that really great sandwich you had in that airport that really surprised you because you thought airport food was going to be shitty or whether we're just writing a fun scene that makes us laugh or anything like that. It, you just have to express yourself. Give that some thought. I'll talk to you tomorrow.